You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. What you're about to hear isn't a normal episode of The Desk Set. Instead, it's a recording of a live webcast that we hosted in celebration of Juneteenth. And it was our very first time using this new platform. We learned so much, um, but we'll talk about that sort of at the end of the conversation. Until then, please enjoy. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that we are on the ancestral homelands of the Coast Salish people, including the traditional unceded territories of the Duwamish, Suquamish, Nisqually, Snoqualmie, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and thank the original caretakers and the storytellers who are still here and have lived here since time immemorial. And now I am excited to introduce Ijeoma Oluo and Ahafamelu J. Oluo. Ijeoma Aluo is a writer, a speaker, and an internet yeller, which kudos to her. It's not an easy time to be a woman, especially a woman of color on the internet. Her work on race, gender, and other social issues has been published in The Guardian, The Stranger, The Washington Post, and many more. Her best-selling first book, So You Want to Talk About Race, came out in uh, January 2018 and is back at the top of the New York Times bestseller list right now. Aluo was named one of the most influential people in Seattle by Seattle Magazine, one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle by Seattle Met, and one of the Roots 100 most influential Americans in 2017 and 2018. She's the recipient of the Feminist Humanist Award of 2018 from the American Humanist Association, the Media Justice Award from the Gender Justice League, and the 2018 Aubrey Davis Visionary Leadership Award from the Equal Opportunity Institute. And if that's not impressive enough, <laughs> her brother, Ahafamele J. Aluo, is a multi-instrumentalist, a composer, a writer, and a stand-up comedian. He's a founding member and a trumpet player in the award-winning jazz punk quartet, Industrial Revelation. He was a semi-finalist in NBC's Stand Up for Diversity comedy competition, and he co-produced comedian and writing partner Hari Kondabolu's albums Waiting for 2042 and Mainstream American Comic. Aluo has appeared on This American Life, and he is the recipient of the prestigious Creative Capital Award as well as the Artist Trust Innovators Award. He has written two autobiographical musicals, which played the public theaters under the Radar Festival. Now I'm Fine, uh, which came out in 2016, and New York Times theater critic Ben Brantley described as a New Orleans funeral march orchestrated by Arthur Schoenenberg. Uh, the other is Susan, which Brantley called Virtuosic and Cracker Jack. Now I'm Fine was adapted into the film Thin Skin, which Aluo co-wrote, scored, and starred in. It's set for release later this year, so keep your eyes out for that. And thanks again to both of you for being with us this evening. Oh, it's us. It's us now. Hey. Hey. It was so so nice to hear such nice things about us. I know. Cheers. Happy Juneteenth. Who wrote that? Yeah. (laughs) It is always weird when you get like your bio that that is so flattering. But you're like, enough the thing I wrote. You wrote it. I wrote it. Uh, Oh, why was I so wordy? (laughs) Why didn't I cut a little bit of this out? If only I could. Determine if I could like write everyone else's opinion of me. That would be <laughs> that would be great. Happy like Juneteenth, everyone! Happy Juneteenth! Uh, I'm so used to having an audience in front of me, and now I'm looking at the screen of a phone. But yeah. I, I there are blips of hearts coming up. Which yeah, helps. I feel you there. I feel 
I feel you. The phone's too far away to read. You could be saying really terrible things about us, but. um, You know, if you've ever wanted to say terrible things about us, now's the time. We can't read it. Uh, Get it all out. Um, It'll be healthy for all of you. So, happy Juneteenth. Why are we here, Ijoma? (laughs) We are here because this is, well, Friday is celebrating the day that word finally got through that we were free, right? You know. And today we were available. <laughs> Friday, Friday we were not. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge celebration for Black people in this country. Um, it is a time of community and history and connection. And, you know, a lot of times when we engage with Black history in America, we engage with trauma. And when, you know, I think, I don't know anybody, any black students who like really look forward to February rolling around and be like, whoa, Black History Month. <laughs> it's a whole month of fire hoses and police dogs. <laughs> you know, yes, just what I wanted, right? Let's watch Roots again, you know? Um, and Juneteenth is a time of celebration, right? And, and celebrating, you know, how far we've come, celebrating community, celebrating how strong we are as a people. And so I love it. I do. And I'm so excited to celebrate. And it's also just nice in the time of quarantine to be yeah. with my brother. We yeah. don't, you know, we have been doing our social distancing. So I think we've seen each other three times in the this, last this three months. Right this this table right here is no at, COVID can no, pass, pass across this table. No COVID can pass this table. <laughs> um, I love the ridiculousness of this too, that we have not like hugged each other yeah. in four months. Um, I think it was probably longer than that, be but, but because of the pandemic, yeah. four months. We've been blaming the pandemic for the last four <laughs> months, um, but you know, we'll have to come up with something else once this is all over. Um, so, uh, if you if you are unfamiliar with Juneteenth, you should read a thing about it. You should read. There's there's uh, lots of things about it. Uh, basically, it celebrates uh, Black liberation and and through that Black joy. Um, and, uh, we were going to, we were thinking about doing a longer thing about what is Juneteenth, but then we thought when I celebrate things, the last thing I really want to do is teach white people. (laughs) Um, so Google, if you don't know, and if you do welcome to the celebration and, you know, I'm sure you can feel out the vibe of the space and I'm excited to talk about black joy, black joy in Pacific Northwest, black joy in this country, triumph, great things. You know, we are, I don't know if you've noticed, we are two black people um, in the Pacific Northwest and we have managed to carve out some- Hence the acoustic guitar behind each other. And so we've managed to carve out some joy here and it's fun to share it with you all. And it's it's nice. Um, and you know, I'm gonna, we talked a little bit about what we were gonna talk about, but I would say for me personally, recent weeks have been incredibly difficult, like more difficult than usual. Um, And when you write a book about white supremacy in America um, and then black people are being murdered, you're asked to talk about murder and white supremacy over and over and over again. So this has been the first time in a very long time I've gotten to talk about something joyful, um, especially having to do with my race and identity. So I appreciate this opportunity and I love an opportunity to do anything with my brother. We don't work together very often. Um, and it's, and we found that we can work together and not. Yeah. Yeah. And still like each other. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there's been a, a, a huge sentiment lately 
of like, um, you know, obviously we're in a very difficult time, but I, I, this huge sentiment of like, at least something's happening right now. Like, let's be grateful that something's happening. And I understand that. I understand that. Um, but it, it really makes you, you like, if you take a step back, you understand, um, even in, even in the celebration of Juneteenth, even in, um, when we talk about how great it is that something's happening, um, we're talking about these dents in this 400 year wall of oppression and like what, and, and what we find is like Juneteenth is a celebration of, of the end of slavery in Texas. And it's, you know, if, if you want to find a celebration of the end of slavery um, in general, I think that's going to have to be sometime in the future. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just like, okay, we have to stop and celebrate something. And with the events going on right now, it's like, oh, we're making some progress. We have to stop and celebrate something. And it's like celebrating not being a slave, <laughs> celebrating the fact that people are starting to come around to uh, not murder, that, that murder is bad. Yeah, I'm, um, glad, I'm glad that Black Lives Might Matter. Enough at least to write it down yeah. on some streets. Yeah. That's that's we're celebrating. But it, it is um it, it is one of those things that I, I feel like the standard of what um uh, the standard of what makes a celebration it, it is is built on such uh we should be able to celebrate better <laughs> better things <laughs> than Better things than not having to do shit for other people for free. Yes. Um, and uh, better things than than maybe a future where people um, don't die disproportionately. From people saying that murdering innocent um, black people, murdering black people is bad. Um, and so I, I feel like oftentimes, even when we bring up ideas of celebration around blackness, the celebration is, is a morbid affair. Um, so I... I for us, you know, right now, I think it's really great to see each other for the first time in a long time in person. You know, we talk on the phone and we, you know, but to be in the same room for the first time and to, you know, have a little bit of cider and to, um, it, it really does feel like a celebration right now. We were listening to music earlier um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it does feel good to celebrate. It does feel really good to. Yeah. And so I hope people. I hope, especially black people watching this are celebrating too. It's, it's you, me, Aham, a baby me, um, having a, having a celebration. This is my house, by the way. This is the baby sister of my, uh, baby picture of my sister that I keep. Isn't that sweet? At all times. It's, I think, is this the only To remind me of when she was small and, um, had no power. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, technically, I don't even think you were born yet. So I I really... I think I was born. You had far less power than at that point. At, I mean, at that point, yeah. I, I think I think <laughs> it's reminded of when I had yeah. absolute the most power over, over you. Anyways, um, so talking about celebration, though, I think it's so important. You know, when I when I do this work, I think it's really important. It's really easy as black people in this country to be focused on what we're fighting against, right? And instead of looking at what we've been fighting for. And I, I, th- I hope that we take Juneteenth and any day, 
honestly, we're more tired and overworked to look at what we're fighting for. We're, we're fighting for the protection of black joy. We're fighting for our families. We're fighting for people we love, you know, we're fighting for each other. And if we don't nourish that and maintain that, then even if white supremacy is defeated, we will have lost. Yeah. And so I'm very excited about this. And so I, I want to just, I'm excited to ask Aham questions. I hope he's excited to ask me questions. Mildly, yeah. Mildly excited. Um, but, you know, drink a little more cider. <laughs> and so I guess, you know, I would love to, let's look at our childhood a little bit here. So, yeah. cause you and I both were raised in the Pacific Northwest and this is King County library system. That's hosting this. So we have two black people who've been here majority of our lives. I, I was two, you were six months old when we moved to Seattle, all of our children have been born here. Um, we are Seattle babies and we have built all that we have here in this area. Um, I guess starting out with, you know, what are your earliest connections to Black Joy here in Seattle? Um, you know, we, we were raised uh, by a white single mom who was very <laughs> involved in, um, in our very early life in the Nigerian community. Um, our, our father was Nigerian, but we did not grow up with him. Um, but there, for the first, especially the first few years of our lives, there was a lot of random Nigerian people um, floating in and out. Um, and, but, but after that, the, there was a long period of time where, where I feel like we really had to understand um, race and the role that it played in our life. And, um, and, and growing up in a, in a multicultural environment, having a white mom, knowing that we're black, um, not necessarily knowing what that means, being um, of, you know, having an African father versus an African-American parent and uh, all, all of those kind of uh, figuring out all of those things and like having a very fractured view of, of blackness and what blackness meant to my life. And, and for me, the, there are earlier things, but, the first, the most prominent thing, <clears throat> being a musician, is is when I started playing music, and um, I grew up on black music. You know, most people in America, in a way, grew up on, on black music. Um, but I, I I noticed that when I started playing, when I started playing jazz, when I started um, immersing myself in black music and playing with other young black musicians. Um, I notice that whether it's genetic, <laughs> whether it's uh, because I grew up in a household where there were Nigerians in the first year of my life, whether it was um, because some sense of 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 what it means to be black is gained just by walking around the world with dark skin, whatever the reason. I noticed a musical kinship with uh, other black people that I played music with and also, also an understanding of, of the black music that I was playing um, that when I was in jazz, like, like middle school and high school jazz bands that were predominantly white, I would notice people not, I'm like, you don't, 
you don't really understand what this is. <laughs> you don't get what this is. Uh, and, and this feeling of like, wait, I understand this. This is, this is mine. This is part of me. Um, I don't, um, when I, when I took rhythm classes in college, it, it felt like a thing that, that I was just gaining an understanding for something that I already knew. And, um, and, and building that, that connection and understanding, um, the joy that, um, that you can have with the foundation as, as, as a black musician making black music in America, which is one of the richest musical traditions that has ever existed in the world. Um, it was, it was really one of the big doors that, that, that opened for me in understanding my own blackness and understanding, um, what it had in store for me and, and what levels of connection that opened up. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good job. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> um, you know, I think I have, I have little moments of definitely feeling connected. Probably some of my earlier ones outside of like food, right? Whenever cooking was happening, whenever other Nigerians were coming, um, music was always playing. Everything smelled like stockfish and onion um, and peppers. But also, <laughs> this is going to sound really funny, but I remember when mom took me to get a jerry curl. Um, I did not have that experience. Yeah. Um, she took me to get a jerry curl in like 90. Okay. So jerry curl was already on its way out. <laughs> okay. We were a little late to the jerry curl. Phase. That's what happens when you get Jerry curls on layaway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but she saved up and was going to take me to get a Jerry curl. And I was in this all black salon. And I remember, I didn't even know what a Jerry curl was. Yeah. I just remember them saying, you're going to be able to move and your hair is going to move around. And he points to this like white lady with curly hair and says, your hair is going to look like hers. Now, Jerry curl, that's not how Jerry curls work. <laughs> FYI, not how they work at all. Uh, so I got a jerry curl and I was allergic and all my hair fell out and then my love shaved my head. <laughs> and I immediately became connected to blackness in the sense of like hair is very difficult in a community that's not set up for um that doesn't support black yeah. hair. And, you know, also had a pretty fierce buzz cut um, for a while, which was amazing. And I had, you You're know, like Chardin. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and my hair was, you know, um, all natural for the first time in my life at that point, because my mom had had to um, had to shave it all off. So that was that was it. That was quite the connection for me. But, you know, in all seriousness, I'd say my first real connection, like feeling was when mom took us to support um Where's my brain? Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson in the 88 primaries and like waited in line and was so excited and walked us in there and was explaining like we were going to be a part of picking a black president and how important it was for her to know that we could be president. Um, I don't remember. Did he win? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he didn't. But, you know, it was a, it was a moment. I remember just we were surrounded because this was when we were living in um, Sandpoint. Yeah. And so we were living kind of in, the, in these housing projects, surrounded by other Black people, really just feeling part of a community. Um, 
and that was a really special moment. Like it, it, it you know, it hadn't occurred to me that a president could look like me. Yeah. And then, it, and once the election was over, I kind of forgot a president could look like me. I don't, I didn't get anywhere near that feeling until Obama got to the primaries. Um, don't say his name. <laughs> I know. I miss him so much. I know. Uh, oh, oh, I, you know, I didn't even think I would miss <laughs> a medium liberal <laughs> president. Oh. Um, and yet, I, I will vote for anyone, you know, complete sentences. Oh, I miss complete sentences. Yeah. I miss some sort of like, anyways, anyways, we're celebrating. What was the, what was the Obama's dog name again? They got that like hypoallergenic dog. Was it, it was sort of like a bee with, with bonkers or something like that. No, that's a dog from Shrill. <laughs> oh, Hulu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Promo. Um, Bo. Bo. Can Bo run for president? <laughs> is Bo old enough in dog years? Is he, is he 35 in dog years yet? Is, is, Bo, is Bo still alive? I don't know. Oh, that would be dark. I hope Bo's uh, alive. Um, we, it would be great to have our first type of Oh, people are answering whether president. or not Bo's alive. <laughs> So many people are like, Bo, Bo. Wow, y'all are, you all are uh, serious about your presidential dogs. Um, <laughs> your turn to ask a question. <laughs> um, can you give me 10 more thoughts on Bo? <laughs> uh, okay, so... Black Joy, this is not, this is not on the, the, the hidden paper that we have, but... Let's uh, let's do it. Uh, let's do it. Um, Christmas Carol style. Okay. Past, present, future. Here's the ghost of Black Joy. Present. Um, wh- what? Do you, where do you? Where do you get? Where do you get your Black Joy now? Oh man! You know, I got the cutest letter from a reader yesterday. I was in. So I have pretty bad anxiety, and lately it's been extra. And I was I had just given up on getting anything done for the day. And I was like, I'm going to go to bed. And I got this adorable letter from a 14-year-old Black girl who had read my book. And she called me Miss Ijoma throughout the whole thing. And just talked about what it meant to her to see herself reflected in a book and how, you know, kind of rare that is. And, oh, man, it just... It just gave me such peace in a way that I hadn't had. Like, that's where I'm finding like young black people are just giving me so much joy right now. Um, and, and they have to because it's a really tough world. And I think as we get older, joy is a little harder to find. But man, young people have it. What about you? I would say, you know, I've, I've really um, not not to not to plug, but. Um, making making the movie Thin Skin that we made together that is is getting it, it would have come out in some form at a film festival or something like that by now, but because of COVID, it, it has not. Um, but you know, we made this independent film that was based on my live show, and we it, this is Seattle, and and working as an artist in Seattle means. Um, that once you get into the infrastructure of things, it's a very white environment. But this was an independent film where we really uh, raised all of the money ourselves. So, you know, it's black director, black act. It's like every, everyone black, everyone a person of color, everyone a woman, very, very few white men to be seen uh, around. And, uh, you, you know, the just 
having having a situation where um there's a bunch of black people in charge of a project like um I know that I'm talking about work when I'm supposed to be talking about joy, but that is, um, I'm a sick person who gets his joy out of work. And, uh, and and that's, that's, you know, every day that I get to work on that and I get to work with Charles Mudede and I get to work with you and I get to look at the beautiful work that you did on that. Um, and that's just kind of, you know, I mean, as we're finishing that, I'm kind of immersed in that. So I'm, I'm kind of filled with joy from that, that project. I love that project so much. You still haven't seen it. No, I haven't. I haven't seen it. It was just, you know, I was, A, you know, working with Charles again was a dream. So you've worked with Charles in this kind of film making, film writing perspective. But Charles Mudede, of course, is also an editor and a writer. And I used to write for him when I wrote for The Stranger. And I've never had a more fulfilling relationship, professional relationship than I had with Charles and having to leave the stranger due to their lack of morals um, was heartbreaking to leave the one black editor I've ever gotten to work with in my life. It's tough. And it was just heartbreaking. Um, It's writing like music and and filmmaking is a very white industry. Um, And I missed working with him so much. And and the amount of joy on set. (laughs) Yeah. Because Charles is a weirdo. A weirdo, the most delightful weirdo. But also working with you because we had never really worked together. Yeah. And I didn't know how that was going to go because you're my little brother and you're kind of an asshole. And I love you. And you were so professional and great and wonderful and supportive. Yeah, I'm a way better person professionally. (laughs) 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 Like I was just, you were so supportive. I had never, I'm not an actor and and never had any desire to be an actor, but I was playing myself and, you know, I would do a scene and you would be like, you're doing really good at this. And you were so supportive to everybody. You were so calm and you were probably the most calm person on the set. (laughs) And it was a beautiful experience. It was a healing experience because we were talking about our life, our childhood. We had a, a version of our father um, in there um, and we, we got to work some with our brother. Yeah. It was such a, a beautiful experience that I just loved. I really did. Yeah. Uh, it's a really good movie. I can't wait for people to see it. I, oh, I want to see it too. That's, uh, yeah. It's it's not meant to be a plug, but 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 uh, I'm excited to see it. I haven't yeah. seen it either, and um, a lot of love went into that project. All right, okay. The Joy's future. You you I just talked. You no, I literally just talked. Yeah, but about my it was, but you jumped in on oh. my question. Okay, fine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> fine. Um. All right. Where, where am I finding joy in the future? Um. I am a couple of things. One, as you know, even though we talked about how it sucks that we're celebrating, like, oh, people are just still figuring out the Black Lives Matter. The one thing I am encouraged in seeing is people who are open to talking strategy around Black liberation instead of just, is this a thing we should support? Should we support, you know, Black people's right to live in this country? Um, that we get to talk strategy. That that makes me really happy to see. It makes me happy to see activists that I have known and, and respected and admired for so long who were all, all called too extreme um, to finally be given some center stage to really talk about, you know, defunding the police, defund the police, defund the police. Oh my God, defund the police, right? Um, and be heard. And that 
gives me some hope. Um, it's Pride Month. Yeah. As a queer black woman, um, seeing I always get a lot of I'm loving see, seeing how much space is and we need more, but it's being given to black queer folk, queer and trans non-binary people. Um, that is giving me a lot of joy. And I just love seeing youth activism, right? I, I was at a college um, a few months before this um, coronavirus outbreak. And it was amazing to watch. I had been invited, you know, by the university presidents and this group of black activists, I had unbeknownst to me had been, you know, protesting at campus. And they found that I had been invited and hadn't been consulted and they kind of hijacked the whole thing. And it was so beautiful because they like pulled me into a room. We started talking strategy. They were trying to get advice as to how to get the, you know, the college to listen to them, um, you know, how to get people to show up to their events. And we were able to coordinate and like, I was able to move this audience, right? This older audience that had come to watch me to come listen to these activists who actually, you know, were really working so hard to change their whole school. And um, being able to be on as many campuses I've been on these last couple of years and watching how quickly young black students jump at the chance to push a conversation forward, to make real change happen um, in their environment, you know, is really, really um, inspiring because, it, it's really easy, you know, you do a lot of this work or even just exist as a black person in this world for a long time to feel like nothing will ever change and to miss your idealism, you know, to miss when you were like, it can happen now, it could happen, this could be it. Um, and to see people just trying still and to know that after 400 years that that hope still lives, that that fire still lives. It really does remind me that like the jaded position that I am in is not the only position, you know, and that as long as we have more generations of people, we have hope. And I hope that, you know, my effort now is to protect them, to ease their way so that they don't end up jaded, but they're just beautiful. I love them. Yeah. What about you? Um, you know, a thing that I'm excited for is like, look, this is a dark time right now. We have a global pandemic um, that I'm against. <laughs> and we have... Unpopular opinion. <laughs> and we have, uh, you, you know, we're, we're in an environment where, where I feel like so many, you know, I feel like every other time we, we've, we've dealt with the aftermath of, of some horrific event that's happened to the, to the Black community and and the rest of the world, the rest of our country kind of reckons with that. It's always been like, okay, we need to figure out how to make a change. Like we need to figure out how we're going to, you know, change hearts and minds. And like, and I feel like this instance, this round that we're in um, has involved a lot more of like, Hey, maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> you know, it's been more, it's been a lot more like, hey, maybe I'm maybe maybe it's not about um finding some external solution. I I you know, working in the arts, working in in with a lot of arts organizations, I've heard so many people in those organizations questioning their own role in that. And like, look, there's a lot of like qualified 
white people in the arts that I, I've worked with and I love and it's, it's wonderful. But, you know, a thing that, that, I, that I, I've talked about uh, multiple times, like when I do talkbacks is, you know, I've been performing since I was 16 years old and this is most of what I've done for my life. And I've never worked with a black artistic director in my life ever one time as even when I do work focusing on, on black people and, and black life, I've never done a major project been commit like I've never done a major project uh, with a, a major organization that had a black artistic director because they're just are so they're just so few. I mean, um, and I feel like this combination of uh, self-reflection and the fact that because everyone's been so because of quarantine and because of um, uh, we have to we have to stop and, and reevaluate what all these organizations look like when they come back. We're we're at a point in reflection, even if all this other stuff wasn't going on. And and as someone who you know art and music and comedy and these things, they they are the central to my life. I'm really excited about the idea that maybe, just maybe, when people have to rebuild after this, that some of these ideas will be part of the rebuilding and they'll get put into the foundation uh, of, of what comes after this. And not just as an afterthought, not just as a Band-Aid, not just as, um, you know, th this, is, this is a thing that we can do to look like an organization that understands this thing. No, we have to rebuild. Let's put, let's, let's put our, let's put our, Corners, our, let's let our cornerstone be people of color. Let's let our cornerstone be, um, and this is an opportunity to do that 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 I don't know has existed in um, to this level in modern times, and that's something I'm excited about in the future. Might not happen. Might it might come back worse than it is, but I'm excited that, that everything that, might be Amazon. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's exciting, though. I mean, I think we we are always presented with new opportunities and it's collectively what we decide to do with them. And I think that we should always be excited when new opportunities come our way and try to rise to it and try to get other people excited about it. Where are you finding black community right now? Like we're social distancing, you know, like we can't actually be in a room with other black people. We are two related black people who are rarely in a room together. Where are you finding black community right now? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I am. I don't know that I am. I, I, I think that that's the thing that, that is, you know, um, as we, as we, as we figure all this out, you know, that is the thing that, that, that is missing in my life right now, a sense of any community, but, but particularly, especially because, you know, um, a lot of my, you know, as, as, as I talked about earlier, you know, my, my connection to to blackness centers a lot around music and and because that's what I've done. That's what that's been my life forever. Um, and to not be able to perform and not see these people that I've been playing with, you know, since I was a kid, you know, I've been playing with the same people since I was a child, uh, the same black people <laughs> since I was a child. And and now we, we can't play anywhere. We don't there's there's no shows. And um and uh, 
I don't know. It's a, it's a thing that's really missing in my life. Um, it's good to see you, though. Yeah, it is. I, I guess I'll do uh, yeah. for now. Um, You're not good at music, but. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what a complex you've given me about music? <laughs> I'm like, maybe I could be good. Maybe. Maybe if someone hadn't told me I'm not good at music my whole life. I'm the younger sibling. I can say whatever I want. And then I can blame you. For <laughs> I think for me, I feel in some ways really similar in that it's very obvious how white Seattle is when you can't like leave. Um, and I have missed black people. I'm so, you know, I am very glad that the last trips that I took for work and I took my partner with me were to DC and to Georgia, Atlanta. Um, like the, I remember getting a Uber or Lyft in Atlanta and after eating shrimp and grits and the Lyft driver opening the door and going, Hey family, and us into the, to yeah. the car and just feeling like, Oh my God, like we have, we belong. Um, the one thing I will say that has been helpful is the writer community in general, like the black writer community, like we've been reaching out to each other and like, I've been getting like messages on Instagram and they're wonderful too, because I think especially right now, if you do any kind of activism work around race or even if you just a black person existing, like you've probably gotten this too, right? Um, you're hearing from all these white people, like, I'm so sorry about yeah. the world. Oh my God. I'm so, have you heard about, I'm sure you've heard <laughs> what's happening. I'm really sorry about it, you know, and it's a lot. It's overwhelming and less helpful than it might seem, actually. And what I've been getting from the Black community is like, hey, girl, check out this great dress that might look good on you. Black old business. (laughs) Yeah, look at this funny video. Here's some great dance, you know, scenes. This is is a song you will love. Here's some Black joy in your life. Uh, Buy these earrings. I know you love earrings. Can I send you some tea? You know, um, really looking out for each other in that way that I have loved and knowing, you know, understanding that we need some space to breathe in in a world that seems very suffocating right now. And so for those brief moments where I can like look and see a message and it's just someone saying, hey, checking in on you. Did you eat well today? You know, um, check this out. Hey, did you laugh today? Here's a really cute video. Has just reminded me, you know, how strong our community actually is and, and strives to be that, you know, there are very, f- <laughs> I don't have a tight knit Seattle Black writing community because the Seattle writing infrastructure is incredibly hostile to Black writers, you know. Um, I've FaceTimed with like Marcus Green, you know, um, there are a couple of people that we we talk, but it's not a big community. And I don't think any black writer in Seattle would feel like they have a black writing community in the city. And so knowing that like even someone out in DC, you know, or New York is going to take the time to say, hey, how are you doing out there? Um, here's a smile for your day has helped me, re- you know, remind me that we are so creative as people and that, you know, family is transcend states you know that you can have family across the country which has been you know little moments it's it's not enough but it's helping me get by i've been thinking about a thing i didn't i I was i was just thinking about this just now um 
When I um, when I went to Nigeria, mm-hmm. I um, which which was a really important thing to me and something that I, I I dreamed of doing my entire life. And for me, it was really special because you know we had this kind of disconnect um, with our Nigerian family, and a lot of my work, my stage work, kind of centered around that. And when I when I did now I'm fine at the para at, at sorry at the more, um, I I kind of took whatever money I made from that and I used that to take a trip to Nigeria to to go um, see our family and then that trip then became a large part of what my next show was. Um, but but there's a thing that happened that I um, I didn't include in the show, which was that you know I. I Forever, I just thought that going to Nigeria was this impossible thing. It was, we grew up poor. It was, you know, it, it, it might as well have been a million dollars to go to Nigeria when we were kids. It just was not going to happen. Um, and then, you know, a, as I got older and then I, I, I realized, oh, now I can just buy a plane ticket and I can go. And it's a thing that, that I can actually do. I, I bought a plane ticket with that money. I... Um, was so excited and made my plans, everything like that. Showed up to the airport, was like checking for my flight. Like I'm ready to go to Nigeria. And they're like, okay, we just need to see your Nigerian visa. Had no idea that I needed a visa <laughs> to go to Nigeria um, because of like just this American privilege that you're American. You think you can go anywhere in the world. Um, and, but no, you need, you need a visa to go to Nigeria. Um, so that, so they were like, oh, you, you can't go to Nigeria today because you have to apply for a visa and get approved for a visa and everything like that. And, um, and I was kind of heartbroken, but I also just, you know, jumped right on it and, and started the process of getting an emergency visa. It was a really horrible process of like this intercontinental, um, you know, transferring money from here to there, having the Nigerian consulate in DC fax this thing to somewhere. And just uh, this horrible thing, it took several, it took several days, but I was able to get it done. Um, I was able to get uh, an emergency visa. And then um, I went back to the, I bought, I, you know, I, I bought a new ticket. I went back to the airport Um and I, I landed in, I landed in, um, Abuja, the, the capital of Nigeria. And, um, I, um, I showed them my passport and the front page of your, my passport, you know, my, my Nigerian visa was taped in the back, but the front page of my passport just had my name and my picture. And, I, I handed it to them and they looked at my name, they looked at my picture and they didn't flip to the other pages. They didn't look at the back. They didn't look for my visa. They just said, welcome home. And that is, is a moment of connection that had been missing my entire life. Uh, it's, it's a moment where, I was given the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> like you know, that my presence um, 
not only was welcomed, but my presence was natural mm -hmm. that I was supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a feeling that I think not very many black people get to feel in America. And it's a feeling that, that made me feel different about my, my, my blackness from that point forward. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, I've never, you know, I have not been um, back and which is something that every Nigerian is dismayed about when they hear, what do you mean? You've never been back. <laughs> when I was in the hospital for a couple of days, my name is very distinctly Nigerian as it's yours. Right. But Ijoma is like the Susan of Nigeria. I, I'm Facebook friends with like three other Ijomas. So and every my name's like a, like a, a long old name that like my name's like Ebenezer. And like the equivalent <laughs> so like when I'm in Nigeria, people are like, aha, maple, you go by that whole that's like a weird old long name. <laughs> yeah, but like Ijoma's everywhere, right? And so um, you know, if you are Nigerian in America and you want to make your family proud, you go into pharmacy or nursing. And so I remember when I was in the hospital for a couple of days, I had gotten really sick when I was pregnant with my younger son. And I remember, um, you know, I've had LASIK, but before then I'm like practically legally blind without my glasses or was. I have perfect vision. And um. right, uh, whatever. And so I took my, I had, uh, my glasses were off and I was sick and I couldn't see. And, you know, my name was outside the door. And every morning I would wake up to, hello. <laughs> I hear there is another Nigerian in the hospital. I had to come say hi. And then they'd be like, so I hear you have never been home. <laughs> and I would start and I'm like, can I just put my glasses on first before we start? Why have you not been home? Oh, you need to go home. Um, but I've never been. Um, the community I found, you know, I think you and you and I have somewhat different relationships to Nigeria, to our dad, to that legacy. Um, I think the closest, uh, the most recently, where I felt really connected to blackness, um, <laughs> you know, in the work I do, um, talking and writing about race actually can, I spend a lot of time in front of white people. Believe it or not, it's not the idea of a good time for most black people to hang out and talk about violent white supremacy all the time. It's just not a party. Um, and it can be really draining to sit in front of rooms of white people and once again be like, this is what racism looks like. Um, please try to do less of it, you know, and we're doing this to survive and it's really draining. And then, and you know, you're looking at it see faces of people that you're hoping will understand but I last year went to the anti-racist book festival at American university that even Kendi put together. And it was like, I walked into this mixer and there's Christine, all these beautiful like black women who write all about all sorts of things about race and children's books and adult books and self-care books. And then, you know, Damon Young was there, we hung out, and I got to speak to a majority Black audience about these issues that mean so much to me. We got to talk not about why racism is bad or is racism bad, how to be less racist, but instead, like, how to preserve joy, how to preserve community. And my partner was there, and, you know, he had never had the best time at my speaking gigs, and I had really been like, you really don't have to come. 
um, because he's black as well and, you know, was at times very drained. And it's well, it's like if you're a fish and then you go to a meeting, it's like, did you know that water's really wet? Yeah, exactly. uh, you know? <laughs> like, oh, God, another meeting about this water, <laughs> how wet it is. Um, and so but he came with me on this trip and, you know, I was doing this panel. We were talking about, you know, um, writing, you know, about issues around race. And but it was like a black audience and the concerns, even even when things got tough, it was tough as like a black person saying, how do I keep going? How do I find joy? How do I, you know, yeah. and being able to like reach out to another black person and say, you know, like, I see you, I love you, I care about you. And I, I remember I, you know, left and my partner was like, wow, like you just, you're a totally different person in this space. I've never seen you talk like this. I've never seen you connect to an audience like this. You look so alive. Like I can see what keeps you going in this work. What I wish you could do this all the time. Um, I do too, you know, um, but it was beautiful to know that like, even in the work that there's this downstream effect, that there is still a community that this, that lives this and that we can still lift each other up. And, you know, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, I hope to live in a world one day where I don't have to write about this anymore. I, you know, I, I want to write murder mysteries, um, Murder mysteries that don't glorify cops. So I'm obsessed with British murder mysteries. Yeah. Um, mostly we just watched some Cadfell earlier, oh. which is a great way to celebrate Juneteenth <laughs> <laughs> with a British murder mystery about a, a 11th century monk. But- See, this is what, what I love about British murder mysteries, okay? Um, it's these quaint areas where everyone's dying. It's rampant white-on-white crime. Just <laughs> rampant white on white crime. You know, I think it's in the in the culture. <laughs> it really is. You know, um, we need to look at the family structure <laughs> in British white communities. What is causing everyone to murder? Um, you could just get a divorce. Has anyone told the British? Wife? I mean, and the plague is because of how they're living. Exactly. You know, absolutely. And so, you know, um, I when I get tired of writing, I listen to British murder mysteries. I love this world filled with white and white crime, um, where black people are just off not murdering each other. You know, and white people are just like, man, you know, this sleepy cottage town. Everyone just keeps doing murder all the time. Um, but I would, you know, I, I would love to look at mysteries one day. I have, you know, and I've told you some of the things I would love to write where like black people exist and aren't as whole people and, um, have whole mysteries to their life. And it's not about the cops, you know, it's not, you know, it's just interesting stories that live within the realm of blackness. So one day I hope to write really, really bad fiction and then that will eventually become good fiction. Um, and not be pulled back once again into documenting the horror that's happening right now in this world. That's like my goal. I hope to make space for that soon. Um, what are some of your goals in your art in the future? You know, I, um, with, with the last show, with, with Susan, my, my most recent show, I, um, I, I noticed, um, I, I, it wasn't really intentional um, but I, I found that, that, that show just resonated much more with, um, an audience of people of color and, and, uh, a black and brown audience. Um, and, um, I feel like, you know, 
forever I've been working to make my my art as broad as possible, you know, while maintaining true to my my principles. You know, I don't I don't waver on what I intend to do and you know in terms of principle, but in terms of like how do I make that translate to as many people as possible? And then, you know, I, you know, I did this show that deals so much with gentrification, deals so much with with what it's like to feel like a, a black person in America now. And 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 I, I noticed this difference in how particularly older white people reacted to it versus um, people of color, particularly people of color. Well, people of color of all ages, but particularly uh, younger, younger people of color. And and for me, it, it was like maybe I don't need to chase every audience. Maybe I, maybe I should make, um, maybe I should make work that's, that's going to be um, most appreciated by the people that are going to make up the world that I want to live in, you know? Uh, and, and, and write things, write things for that, that, that beautiful future world. And, hope that uh it manifests i hope that 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 uh it comes into fruition and um you know i mean i think that 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 that's that's my my plan is to is to keep making things that make black and brown people happy and and um not really care about um as many other things because you know like the things that we're talking about now as these beautiful, exciting moments are really built around kind of commonplace existence and being recognized as a human being, because that's what happens when the standard is like, don't kill me and let me own property. <laughs> and like, you know, when that's a standard, uh, you know, basic elements of joy seem like these extravagant things. And I guess what I want is for them to not be extravagant things for them to, you know, um, for this to just be the work that I do and for this to just be the, the, the audience that I work for and the people that I work for and, and the people that I hopefully can enrich their lives. Yeah. Just be like, yeah, of course you would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're about out of time. Yeah, I think we are. We, I think we're about ready for, um, I, well, I've never, I've never done a, one of these. Uh, yeah. Things. I don't know. So, does somebody, does someone jump in? Do, do questions magically become a thing? Some, so the screen did a thing. We're Can you hear me? Ah, yes. All right. Okay. Uh, so this is Emily from the library system. I have some questions. We've got way more than we'll have time for, but I've chosen a few of them. Okay. Um, so in the spirit of celebration and joy, can you tell us some of your favorite, this person asked specifically about fiction by black authors, but I'm curious just in general about black artists that you are turning to for joy right now. Um, yeah, um, I had the most amazing conversation, um, with Nora Jemison, N.K. Jemison, um, the amazing black, um, speculative fiction writer has won, I think, three Hugo Awards, the only black woman in history to do so. Um, and it was so fun. Um, we got to talk about science fiction and imagination as a revolutionary tool, right? And how important it is when, just like you were saying, you know, when the world itself 
tells you that victory means you get to not die, right? That victory means um, the terror is lessened to instead throw it out and say, what if I created a whole new world? Um, what would it look like to create these whole new circumstances um, and envision that as a black person? Um, that was just so amazing to me. Um, and I'm also super, super, super pumped about Jason Reynolds, um, young adult writer, um, writes the Miles Morales series and a lot of other books for, for black youth. Um, he's like a superstar of, of, of young adult fiction. Um, and just the energy he gives, the love he has for kids, the love that, that black kids have for him. Um, just knowing like dude has like a tour bus, like <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, and he's like this tall black dude with lo- long locks and tattoos and, you know, and just living the life, just writing to please black children. Like, Oh, um, I just adore it. So that, that's, I'm getting a lot of, um, a lot of inspiration from that right now. That's making me really happy. Um, I love Samantha Irby so much. Oh, me too. Um, the best. I love her books. Uh, but right now, the, the thing that has been getting me through this pandemic is that Samantha Irby, if you don't know her, she's the best-selling author of several books. You should look her up. She's incredibly brilliant and hilarious. Um, but she also has a newsletter that is almost daily where she does recaps of episodes of the show Judge Mathis. And it's just the best thing that exists. And um, and the, nothing gives me more black joy than <laughs> Samantha Irby, than, than black Samantha Irby talking about the black people on Judge Mathis. <laughs> it's really like... If, if you want to, if you want to see nuanced life uh, communicated through just one of the most um, brilliant narrators uh, of our time, I, I I recommend it to the, the highest degree. Yeah, Sam is uh, a genius, absolutely of the highest order. Um, I adore her, and like as a black queer fat woman who grew up poor, to read stories that seems so familiar and, and somehow are hilarious. And you're like, wait, I didn't realize my childhood was hilarious, but here it is. It's hilarious. Oh my God. You know, like it's just brilliant and beautiful. And, um, I, I want, if, if you don't have her writing in your life, well, you're, you're missing out. And if you're just hearing about her, this is why white supremacy has to end. Exactly. (laughs) You could have have had (laughs) Sarah be in your life for so long if it weren't for white supremacy uh burn it down uh um okay sorry i'm just so distracted i'm thinking about sam irby she's great (laughs) (laughs) um sarah says uh she's curious about whether the moment we're experiencing is spurring either of you to create new material, whether it's celebratory, joyful material, or sort of commemorative or more somber. What are you working on? And is the current moment informing that? I wish it was. Um, I think what it's spurring for me, I mean, I'm working more than I ever have, but it's all out of necessity. It's not out of like a creative girl spurt. Like it is, um, 
staying up all night watching protesters, hoping they're okay, talking, trying to get people to understand why we have to support this movement, trying to get people to understand, you know, what police actually have been doing to our communities for a long time. It's really actually brutal time creatively. My creative, you know, I just finished writing a second book on violent white male supremacy. And my goal was to not do that, to get a break from that. And this has definitely made sure that this is all I'm going to be talking about in the near future. But what it is spurring, I think for me, at least, and I and know for a lot of other black writers and activists I talk to, um, is how much we need self-care. And like, it is spurring my future plans to prioritize my creative life. Like I, I'm saying to myself more and more and more, God, Ijoma, didn't you start writing because you love writing? <laughs> because I don't remember loving writing uh, and I don't feel it right now. Um, and so I'm going to have to find a way to spur that. So it's, it's giving me the need. I don't have the creative juice right now. It's more of a survival instinct in me saying, you can't do this forever. You're going to have to prioritize. If you care about Black people, you're a Black person to care about. And don't let this steal writing from you. Um, and so I've definitely started making more plans than I had before. It's like, okay, what workshops can I get into? What healthier spaces can I get into that are going to balance this? Because I think we look at what Black people create in these times and we think, oh my God, it's amazing. See what they did. And what I look at in these times, especially as a Black creative is, oh shit, what could we have done? Yeah. Like, what could we, there is no, I'm sorry, but if you live at the crosshairs of this, there is no, I got inspiration and wrote the greatest thing of my life in the middle of terror and trauma. It is, I tried to survive and I came out with something and it could have been 10 times worse if, 10 times better, if half my brain wasn't taken up with fear and terror. And so it's recognizing that, that like, okay, I, I can't murder myself to this. I can't murder my creativity to this, that my creativity is worth more than this. And that I'm going to have to find a way. I'm going to have to find a way to nurture my art, my talent. Um, that's what's driven home. But right now, I'm not there. Right now, it's, you know, every day is is this present emergency we're in. And I have to find that. So that's kind of my goal. Well, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it does happen like that. So sometimes it does happen that people find this incredible inspiration you know and then they write you know change is going to come or they you know or they 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 write strange fruit or they you know so it's so like but like billy holiday threw up after singing strange fruit every yeah. time you know she would you know like but, these are a huge risk but what i'm saying is like there's always going to be you know living in this in this random universe there's always going to be uh, these points and connections you know yeah I, I i feel angry right now i think about you know everything that I, that I thought I'd let go every time that I had been just fucked with by the police for no reason. And I thought it was behind me and, and that it, it comes back and I, and I get angry. And, and I guess if I had some creative idea that was inspired by that, it might give me some fuel for that. And it might create this perfect storm. Life is random and those beautiful things happen and beautiful things do come out of terrible things. Um, but we we get it's misguided to think 
that that beauty that beauty itself is created from those things. Beauty beauty itself shows its power by making it past those things by exploding through those boundaries. And when, when people have a vision so strong that it can't even be held back by that. And then, and, and we see those, we see those beautiful things, but you're, you're, you know, my beauty isn't because of, of oppression, you know, my, my beauty exists inside me. And, um, yeah, I, 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 again, I wish, I wish that this were inspiring me. And, and, and who knows, maybe, maybe something will come out. But I know one thing: I'm not sleeping better. I'm not. <laughs> my mental health isn't better. I'm not. My workflow isn't better. Um, you know, we'll see. Thank you. Um. Going back to the idea of uh, celebration and sort of the time, the time that we're living through, uh, I'm curious how you are planning to celebrate Juneteenth this year and also how you, how your family has celebrated it in the past when you were able to gather in person. I mean, mostly we just say happy Juneteenth. (laughs) (laughs) We're not not the most social. Yeah. Beings. Um, I mean, this, this is our Juneteenth. Yeah, celebration. Like, happy Juneteenth. Um, and um, right, yeah. right now, I mean, but right now, getting to see you after not getting to yeah. see you and getting to, you know, celebrate. And, this is a highlight of my week. Yeah, honestly, sure. it really is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just. Um, I mean, I think like creatively, like I'll definitely we reach out and I'll be saying happy Juneteenth to a lot of people. You know, I know that my partner is going to be doing a Juneteenth celebration on KEXP. He does this every year for him. You know, it's definitely bringing together the music community. Let's Uh, start by getting everyone the day off. Oh, and then, yeah, and then, ask that, yeah. then we'll, we'll ask that question again. Exactly. I will still be working on Juneteenth. I will still have deadlines uh, on Juneteenth, but I will say happy Juneteenth people. And I will be happy at seeing other people where they can celebrate. But, you know, it's not. Yeah, it's just a moment, I think, to recognize other black people. Like for me, the connection is just in knowing like, oh, here's a thing where other black people are reaching out to other black people and saying, yeah. Like I see you. Um, it's like it's like a collective nod, you know, um, which, by the way, Seattle, start teaching your black kids to nod because they're not doing it. <laughs> it's not like you see black people all of the time here. Nod when you see, you know, like, oh, my God, teach your kids to nod. Anyways, um, but it's like a collective nod, you know, a, a celebration that we're still here. That's probably what we're going to do. Um, you know, um, we're going to say happy Juneteenth. I will. I, I usually make, I usually force my children to watch some videos, yeah. <laughs> read some things. So it's not their favorite. I would normally be doing some kind of a Juneteenth gig. Yeah. Some kind of show. Yeah. Um, um, and so and luckily, you know, the internet still exists. So I can still force that upon them. Yeah. Um, and, and it will be like the Juneteenth of old, but we're not, you know, we're not incredibly social people, you know, we're going to just keep doing the work and, you know, um, it'll be a nice little reminder to like reach out that we still have community, but especially when you can't see anybody, can't get out to a thing. Yeah. Sorry. That's like a, such a downer. <laughs> Sorry. I did. You know, we're just, 
we're kind of we're, we're not the most fun people. <laughs> uh, we have uh, some requests from uh, white folks who are not familiar with the nod in the comments to get a demo. Can we get a demo of the no. nod? No. <laughs> no. That's fair. It's not for you anyway. You'll never see it again, so I don't know why. You're never going to see it. Um, you know. All right. Yeah. Um, so Eric, you'd be able to crack our code. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you tricking us. <laughs> You're like, many uh, really light-skinned black person. How do I know? They nodded at me. Eric wants to know how old you were when you found out or first celebrated Juneteenth, and did you learn about it in school, or was it something that you found out about elsewhere? The first time I did it, did it was when I did a Juneteenth gig when I was like. 18 years old. That's the first time I heard about it. I didn't know anything about it before that time. Uh, I never learned about it in school. Uh, you know, it, it it's, um, I think, probably the least taught about holiday that there, that there is. Um, we did nothing in school at all. I found out about it in high school because I was in Running Start and I was the president of the Black Student Association at Edmonds Community College. And so it was my job to coordinate celebrations. Um, so I used to celebrate, I guess, when we talk about past celebrations, I definitely celebrated then. Um, but I, I had not heard about it at all. And it was definitely something when I would go back to like my high school and talk about people would be like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, just there'll be music. Just come. <laughs> Please come. Um, you know, and it's sad because it's a beautiful holiday. And like I said, I think especially I speak at a lot of high schools um, and when I talk to kids, they talk about how much they dread February coming around and the actual trauma of it. Uh, Juneteenth would be a great, you know, counterbalance to some of that trauma. Uh, if it could be taught in schools and celebrated in schools, um, I would love to see some of that. All right. Uh, a lot of people are calling me out in the comments for asking the non question. And I hear that and I apologize. <laughs> they are right. I should not have asked it. <laughs> We're working on learning in public. So sorry about that. Um, let's see. I'm trying to, there's so many. Uh, Okay, so here's a question from Sharice. She says, what are your thoughts on ways to manage the implicit thought that to be Black means that you speak for all Black people? She also says, I'm a Black therapist, and I've been thinking about reasons why the Black community is not accessing behavioral health services as readily right now. And she thinks it's important. She's wondering, wondering if there's anything we can do, she can do or the community can do to uh, raise that up. Yeah, man, it's hard because it's not a thing. It's not a thing that we chose. Like, it's not like black people speaking for all black people, like gets imposed upon you when every time someone invokes black on black crime, you know, when talking about any anytime, anytime someone invokes, well, if, if you want improvement in the black community, you need to start it from the inside. Like anytime someone says uh, a thing like that, you're creating kind of this dynamic that white people are individuals and black people are this amorphous blob um, with some internal communication that speaks some language that the rest of the world can't understand. And we have to figure out our message and, and filter it through some translator. Um, and, and we really get put in a position where 
you you are supposed to speak for black people. I don't speak for I I I don't even I don't I don't even speak for myself sometimes. <laughs> like, uh, but but it is a situation that that we get put in. Like you get put in that situation, and and not only that, but you get put in that situation every time that you're out in public in the way that you um, that you present yourself in the way that you act and you and and this idea that like everything that you do isn't just representing you it's representing black people on a whole and if you do something wrong it's black people doing something wrong and you know and, and <clears throat> I mean that is a thing that 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 needs to change but I, yeah yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know anybody who's like I speak for the blacks um, who's actually black plenty of white people that <laughs> to speak for black people when we talk about mental health, though, in therapy, too, it's interesting to me is I think, you know, a lot of times and maybe this is what the person asking the question was thinking of as a mental health professional is people saying black people don't get therapy. What 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 what's actually being said is, is that therapy wasn't built for black people. Um, and the truth in that is not that, like I love therapy. Love therapy. Me too. You love therapy. Um, uh, finding a black therapist. Very, 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 very difficult. Being a black therapist, I've talked to black therapists, also incredibly difficult. It's an industry. It is a it is a a business built not to serve us, not to help us. And yeah. the people who are serving and helping us are doing so against, you know, an entire tie that tells them that we are to be pathologized, you know, and that we are abnormal in the way in which we live and that we are to be empathized with, um, you know, they're, they're fighting an educational system that doesn't actually look at us like full human beings, looks at us as problems. And so when people say black people, therapy isn't for black people, what they're saying is, is that it didn't help me. It didn't help my mom. It didn't help my grandma. I'm going to try to save you the trouble. And so what needs to actually change is not even our conversations around therapy. Therapy has to change. Right. The industry has to change. Um, it has to want to be a place that sh- that proves it can be trusted to be to trust someone with your mental health. Not to. I'm going to take this really dark. You know, I have a friend whose cousin went to a mental hospital to seek help with mental health issues and was murdered yesterday by one of the guards. A black young black man was murdered by the guards there in an altercation. Um, so I'm not trying to convince black people they need therapy. Um, I want mental health, just like every other sector, to see us as whole people, worthy of full lives, who have full lives, and, and to serve us first. It is not good for our mental health to go into any space and consistently uh, be harmed. And that is happening to a lot of black people, even in mental health spaces. And it sucks because a good therapist is amazing. Like a good therapist yeah. does so many great things. And, and part of me wants to say, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. But what I really want to say is change the industry, um, fight for the industry. And, and if you are a therapist of color, if you're a black therapist, a black mental health professional, um, you keep fighting for change and, and, and force your call, try to force your colleagues and let us know how we can help force your colleagues to actually make that change happen so that it can actually be a safe spot. All right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, and one more question uh, while we're talking sort of about centering whiteness or decentering whiteness. There's a question from someone who's on a diversity curriculum task force for her organization and was recently struck by the by um, Resma Minikam's comment, diversity from what? How do we talk about 
being inclusive without the premise that whiteness is the center of everything. She's looking for a language that we can that can change the way that we think about that. And wondering if you have any suggestions. That's a Joe question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I definitely say. Um, there, there's a couple of pitfalls that companies and organizations make when they're trying to look at their diversity work. One is they're coming from the idea that they've been sold this idea that, you know, you watch these TV shows where it's like, um, the bunny rabbit was scared when the tortoise, tortoise moved in because didn't think they'd get along, but it turns out they all like the same things and now they're best friends. Difference is great, right? That's not actually how that works. Um, we have people from different backgrounds, different needs, different life experiences. And sometimes you get in the same room and you don't find out you have the same goals, the same personality, um, the same likes. And you still have to respect that person and appreciate that person. And I think that that's the number, the biggest fallacy that comes through is this Pollyanna story that you're going to take, you're going to quote unquote diversify a work spot. And you're just basically going to have a whole bunch of white dudes who happen to have different skin color. Um, And so you have to let that go. Um, You have to let go of the notion that true equity and diversity is going to be painless for the majority. It's going to be an adjustment. It's going to be uncomfortable because you have to shift things. You have to make room. Um, You have to let go of the things that you were doing that are harmful. And then the one tip I'll give, because honestly, I usually charge for this. You have to start seeing the lived experience of people of color as a value add in itself. It is not, I'm going to hire an engineer who just happens to be black. No, it's I'm going to hire a black engineer because what they've learned as a black engineer is valuable to me. Right. And that is where you have to understand the value of lived experience, the value of different community practices. You have to understand the connection to different communities that people bring in and what it actually means to your environment. And you have to value that on its own instead of treating it like an afterthought, as if we are dragging our identities behind us instead of it being a huge part of who we are. Thank you. I think that is uh, helpful, even if it's, uh, it's not the language necessarily, you know, we can't just make a quick change, but I think that's a really helpful way to think about, like you said, the value add. Um, so as we wrap up, uh, Joma, can you tell us about your upcoming book when it's coming out and a little bit about what it is? <laughs> sure. Um, it's coming out in December and it's called um, Mediocre Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And it's pretty self-explanatory as to what it's about. Um, but it's looking at about 200 plus years of the formation of a particular white male identity in this country and what it has cost us as people to continue to define success as how people, white men in particular, can dominate and control and exploit other people and what it costs everyone of every race, ethnicity, and gender in this country and try to get people to look at breaking away from these dangerous patterns to, to save us all. Sounds uh, necessary. (laughs) So thank you again, both of you for being with us tonight. Happy Juneteenth. Uh, We will say that to, and thank you to all 5,000 audience members as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you. Happy Juneteenth, everybody.
hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did hosting it. We were so honored to have these two hometown heroes in conversation. We learned a lot, both from a technical side of things and also about how better to facilitate these conversations. And one thing we're really dedicated to doing is involving more people of color in both the planning and execution of events like this. We're looking forward to a series in the fall that features authors of color. And we're working with community partners to make sure that the moderators for all of those events are from the same community as the authors themselves. Thanks again for listening. We can't wait to be back with you with regular episodes soon.